Amen. As we turn in our Bibles and hear the Word of God from the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, we will conclude this little mini-series within a larger series of, as we consider the vision of heritage, we start with the gospel. We must start with the gospel, we must continue with the gospel, we end with the gospel, and that gospel is God and Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we now think about uh, God's preserving grace from Romans 8, let us now hear the word of God together. Beginning at verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the promises and the hope of the gospel and for assurances in your grace as this passage gives. We ask that the Spirit of God would fall upon this preaching and upon our hearts, that it would be understood with our hearts, not merely our heads. And that this would be worked in our lives and through our lives and worked out of our lives to bring You glory, to give us a greater tranquility and peace in the work of our God. Help us to get this right and help us always to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to whom these things speak. How thankful we are to be Your people and that we can call You the one God and Creator of heaven and earth, our God, knowing that these things are true to us. We pray that You would be glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Here before us is one of the great high water marks and passages of the Scriptures. And so profound is this passage, we have difficulty believing it consistently. We easily forget it. We often do not live practically in light of its truth. 
But if we can be reminded yet once again this morning that God's grace is so encompassing and His love so incomprehensible that the very salvation that He began in you, He will complete it fully. It was not long after Paul visited that region of Galatia and the churches that sprouted up in the area there that he had to write them his epistle to correct a gross misunderstanding of the gospel. It is a misunderstanding that still plagues us today. He exhorted the Galatians, O foolish Galatians, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And this, I'm afraid, is too frequently true of us. And we need to be reminded of the Gospel, not just this morning. But we need to be reminded of the Gospel and its truth daily. We need to be reminded of the Gospel truth hourly. Because we so are prone to forget the truths in our heart and in our lives. And as we recap some of the essentials of the Gospel in these past four or five weeks, we come to this final doctrine of God's grace of perseverance. Perseverance is not that we begin our journey with God as God draws us by His Spirit in regeneration and then brings us to faith in the finished work of Christ only to have the work finished in ourselves and for our effort to get us to the finish line. No. Salvation is completely of God. It is completely free of free grace. And that which He has begun in you, He will perfect it. He will complete it completely from start to finish. It is a work of God. And a proper understanding of the gospel, getting the gospel right, will continue to keep our focus upon God and keep our dependence upon Him and not on ourselves, which we are so prone to do. Understanding the gospel is one of the most comforting and reassuring and humbling truths and, may I say, energizing truths in our lives. God keeps reminding us. He keeps reminding us. I've got this. Now press on. I've got this. Now press on. And there's nothing that will separate us from the love of Christ that He took the divine initiative in. This doctrine is stated very plainly for us in the Westminster Confession of Faith in the 17th chapter there, when it says, They whom God hath accepted in the Beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally or finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. That's a great comfort and truth to you, and to your children, to you, and for your children. It does not mean that everyone who professes to be a Christian is assured of eternal life. 
What it does mean, and follows the other four points that we have thus covered, is that every depraved sinner whom the Father has sovereignly chosen and for whom the Son has died his saving death, and for whom the Father called with the Word and Spirit, justifying and sanctifying them, these true saints are God's eternally, and they are eternally secure. And they will never lose what God gave them by grace. It's by virtue of God preserving us in His grace, a true Christian will certainly persevere in the state of salvation and finally, ultimately, completely be saved. So let us consider God's grace of perseverance from a few points this morning in this passage. And first of all, I'd like to draw your attention to the basis of this persevering grace. The basis of your perseverance. The basis of your perseverance in the faith is rooted in the decree of God's election flowing in the unchangeable love of God for you in Christ. Verse 29 says, For whom He foreknew, He also predestinated us to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. Well, something perhaps maybe seems a little missing in the phrase of this order salutis, does it not? Something that we often think about salvation as part of that being saved process is the sanctification. But that word is not mentioned here, but it jumps right from justification to glorification. And the Scriptures here reveals glorification, which is the, the end and the sum and the completeness of our salvation are for those whom He predestined and He called and He justified as though it had already been, has already been affected. The word glorification here, or glorified, is an aorist tense used in a proleptic way, and it's meaning the intimating the certainty of its accomplishment. It says here that you have been glorified. If, if you have been predestined and called and justified, and now I'm using it in this past tense, showing the certainty of the accomplishment, you are glorified. John Murray says of this, respecting the certainty of glorification, if saints fall away and be finally lost, then the called and justified may fall away and be lost. But that is what the inspired apostle says will not happen and cannot happen. Whom God calls and justifies, He also glorifies. The basis of our glorification is the sovereign election of God. It is by God's decree. The basis of your perseverance is not your ability. It is not your free will. 
You certainly may desire it. I hope we all do, certainly. You may will it. We certainly all should. But the basis of your perseverance is God's decree, not your free will. The basis of something. It's the ground. It's the foundational element. Let's say you're walking through the woods and you throw a, a, a match out on the forest floor, and it begins a large forest fire. Some of us have come very close to doing this over the course of the years we've been here. And hence, one of the reasons I think the Cobalt Fire Department exists is not as much for the community, but for us. <laughs> and let's say we start a large forest fire, and for miles, people can see the smoke covering the sky and they have three things to consider. Number one, the lit match and the person who threw it. Number two, they can consider the fire that everyone is concerned about. Number three, they can consider the smoke that rises as a result of the fire. What is the basis of the smoke? What is the cause of the smoke? It's the fire. But what started the fire? A person with a match, not the smoke. When we consider our salvation from start to finish, we must also consider some of these factors. What is faith? Faith is like the smoke, a result from the fire. What caused the fire is not the smoke. Our faith did not start our salvation. It did not cause God to take notice. It did not cause God to act savingly for us. As John said, as we looked at last time or the time before, we are not God's sheep because we believed. We believe because we are God's sheep. And there's a huge difference in the order of those words. Our salvation, including our perseverance, is grounded in God's election, in His love, in the work of the triune God. And when that work is in the life of a person, there will necessarily be fruit that comes forth. Smoke will always rise from the forest fire. And if God has kindled a fire in the heart of a sinner, that sinner will respond. All that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. The sinner will respond. He will trust in Christ and he will be active in the grace of God. Smoke will rise up because God is at work. And when God is at work, the believer will not be lost, ever lost. He will never finally or completely fall away. Now, there may be times when he does fall away. And sometimes those times can be very drastic and very severe, and he can fall away. Yes, he can fall away, but not finally and not ultimately. God will bring him back. Sometimes God allows this for multiple reasons. The likes of which we do not know. But the assurance for us and for our children 
is that God will never, what He began, ultimately lose. And all that the Father has given to the Son, the Son will in no wise cast out. The Son will not lose a one. God's love preserves Him from ruin and eternal despair and will bring the lost back. That's probably great hope for some of you parents today. If you can claim by faith that which God is giving you for your children. If you can live in the light of the truth of this, it can give you great peace and great comfort. You will not be able to achieve your children's salvation, but the Lord God can. And Christ, who is the Lord of salvation, is the one in whom we are complete. Let's find our comfort in Him. But secondly, there is a, a certainty of your perseverance. There is the, the basis of our per, per, uh, perseverance, but which is founded in the decree of God's election. But there is a certainty of it. And the Scripture next prompts us with five rhetorical questions. Not so much looking for an answer here, but rather communicating a certain truth by way of implication. And he begins the first question in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the implication is certainly not God. And certainly not the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. It is He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. Certainly God is not against you. And if God is not against you, but God is for you, then who can effectively be against you to thwart the very will of God? Absolutely no one. And absolutely nothing. The second question that he goes on in verse 32 he who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him freely give us all things? Freely. This is, this is grace. This is not that you're meriting, working, earning, or pulling for it that God then takes notice and has to respond, but He is freely giving you all things. Note that all the benefits necessary to the fulfillment of God's purpose for us we receive in Christ. In other words, God gave us Christ. How much more will He give us all the lesser benefits of life? Yeah, right. All things. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The third question then he then poses to us there and as he's building this case he is saying who shall bring a charge against God's elect well it's certainly not God um, it's God's elect it's his people and his elect he justifies and whom he justifies he has glorified who will bring a charge effectively? Who will lay a charge that it can land upon the elect efficaciously? No one. 
absolutely no one in the heavens or in the earth or under the seas, nothing or no one, no power is too great, no might can thwart this purpose of God. And then the fourth question, who is he who condemns? Well, it's certainly not Christ, for it is he who is in constant intercession for you. The intercessory work of Christ, his ongoing work as his priestly work at the right hand of God the Father, is the work that is ever securing us, and we are saved to the uttermost in Christ. See, Peter would have been sifted by Satan as wheat if it were not for Christ interceding for him in prayer. And Satan would be sifting you as wheat if it were not for your Lord faithfully at the Father's right hand, even now, praying for you effectually. And that he does because he loves you. And he's not going to lose a one that the Father has given. If you can lose your salvation and fall completely away from the faith, the entire priestly work of Christ fails. But His atoning death is that which secured your salvation. His intercessory prayers for you are efficacious to preserve you and to keep you. And there's not a single prayer request that the Father hears from His Son, and the Son offers up to the Father in your behalf that the Father will not answer, and will not answer perfectly, fully, and completely. The Father will not deny His Son, and the Son will not deny His people. There's not a single person in hell for whom Christ intercedes. Christ's intercessory work is not a failure. Who condemns you? It's not Christ, for He is the one that has justified you. Then the fifth question in verse 35, who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the list goes on, and it says, absolutely nothing or no one. These Things are simply some of the all things that work together for good over which we are more than conquerors. The basis of the perseverance of God's elect people is in the election and love of God in Christ. And the power of your perseverance is the power of God to preserve you. This is grace. The work in your perseverance is a work of God. It's a work of God in in you, energizing you to love God and to obey whatever He commands. Does this mean that you're passive? No, absolutely not. As soon as you are generated by God, as soon as that fire comes up, there's smoke. People can see the smoke, and they see the smoke, they know there's a fire. In fact, you endure life and all of the trials and all the, the pressing things upon you with great energy and great activity as God works in you 
and through you to do of his good will and his good pleasure. And third, there is evidence of God's grace of perseverance. There's a few points of misconceptions to clear up and why we get this thing so quickly wrong. Before I move on to there, while I'm thinking about this point, let me just weave it into the message at this point. The passage started with Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. It ends with this great assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God, but in the context of this tremendous passage, there's going to be an understanding that we're going to go through trials, and life is not going to be easy. And part of the perseverance in which we, by the grace of God, will be successful is being able to endure these trials with grace and gracefully. One of the greatest characteristics that God is glorified in His people and by His people and through His people is when they endure under great pressure. If God is most glorified in your endurance under great pressure, and He's giving you the grace to do so, then don't expect to ever be exempt from it. The world would have you to think that we need to be pursuing personal peace and affluence, trying to avoid the the challenges of life and always getting frustrated when things come our way. That is not God's way. It wasn't the way for His Son. And it is not the way for you. There will be trials. Yes. There will be tribulations. Yes. But something that is greater than all the tribulations and trials is His grace. The word endurance has this idea of a pillar. As you think about downtown, the... the, full-scale model of the Parthenon, which is surrounded by these great pillars that hold up the massive stone roof upon that structure, with tremendous and immense weight and stresses and forces pressing down upon those foundational pillars. That's the word picture that this word endurance, sometimes translated as patience, sometimes translated as endurance. That's the picture of you. And when there are pressures in life and circumstances weigh you down with great forces and the struggle, God is most glorified through those times when you're trusting in Him and He is then holding this weight up for you. As you trust in Him, He is the one that bears it. There's no way you could. And sometimes in your flesh, you try. But you don't see God holding it up behind the scenes. 
But as you trust in Him, and you know the power of the Gospel, even the power that raised Christ from the dead, and the Spirit has been given to you to endure. You can endure those situations in praise, and you can give Him thanks in the most difficult trials of your life. And that kind of situation and that characteristic that God's people has glorifies Him and glorifies Him tremendously. So don't think that you're going to be exempt from these things. But know that when you go through them, there is grace and just the satisfaction that God is being glorified brings you the greatest satisfaction that life can offer you. All those tribulations, by the way, this chapter will say, as difficult as they can be, and the Apostle Paul knew this, cannot even be compared to all of the glory and the blessings that God has prepared for you in Christ. So let's just have a good expectation and a right expectation. Now, if you do that, you're going to have a mindset to the gospel more readily in your life, and you're going to be living more practically the gospel in your life, for it is the power of God, of salvation, today, yesterday, and tomorrow. So let's clear up a few misconceptions of this perseverance, of this grace of perseverance. First of all, while election is the basis of our perseverance, and that election is unconditional, our glorification is not unconditional. It is very important to get this doctrine right. There are essential conditions that must be met for you to be glorified. such as, he who endures to the end shall be saved. You must endure to the end. You must abide in Christ and His Word. You must continue to hold fast to the faith. You must obey the Gospel. And these are all essential to the saints' final victory. Charles Hodge, the the Princeton theologian of a century and a half ago, says it this way, The false security of salvation commonly rests on the ground of our belonging to a privileged body like the church or to a privileged class like the elect. Both are equally fallacious. Neither the members of the church nor the elect can be saved unless they persevere in holiness and they cannot persevere in holiness without a continual watchfulness and effort. End of quote. But remember that this effort of which Hodge speaks is not the cause of the fire, it is the smoke. It is the evidence that the fire exists. And it's important to get that right, in the right order. Because this doctrine is often misunderstood, perhaps because the term perseverance can imply something I must do in order to secure my salvation. 
And while it is true that only those who persevere to the end will be saved, it is not true that they will get to their end in their own strength or even by their own effort with the help of God. A saint's perseverance will occur precisely because God's grace kept them in grace and kept them in the race and enabled them to finish. There's another misconception that unlike the work of God in regeneration where you are passive, the work of God in preserving grace, in persevering grace, energizes you in activity. Because of the term, perseverance can be taken or it could be understood as a work of man with God's help, which it is not, rather than a complete grace of God at work in man, some theologians have preferred the term preservation. Preservation. God's preserving grace. And that's a good term that reveals a God-centeredness of this doctrine. But the problem with that term, however, is that it can also be understood to imply passivity or a quietism in the saints. Uh, kind of like the let go and just let God. To the extent that the imperatives in Scripture like pursue peace with all people and holiness, apart from which you will not see the kingdom of God. Or strive to enter the rest. Or obey the gospel. Those kinds of things just don't have an effect for those who think about preservation as something in which they are just passive. The proper understanding of this doctrine is supported well in Philippians when Paul is speaking to the church there in the second chapter. He says in verse 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. It's not a synergistic work where you are working along with God, accomplishing the end. It is the fire that has been kindled in your heart that God's work is working in you and through you so that there is a smoke that ascends and that is the the fruit of your labors. And that is the fruit of faith. That is the, the faith that is at work in you. The results, the evidence of the fire. So while the work of regeneration, which is the new birth by the work of the Holy Spirit, is performed on us while we are passive, just like a birth, work in God's preserving grace is one where we are quite active. Do not confuse the term work with activity in its technical sense. Don't confuse the saints' activity and efforts with work that merits God's favor. Because it is easy to get those turned around. And in fact, when you're not walking by the grace of God, depending upon Him, you will default back to a works-based mindset. Uh, you, You do it all the time. I do it all the time. When we turn our eyes off of Christ, 
when we're not walking by grace, when we're not living in the power of the Spirit, we find ourselves back in Romans 7. Romans 7 is not the place that the Christian needs to dwell. Romans 7 is not the crutch on which we need to lean. We need to be Romans 8 and living by His grace. But when we, when we turn our eyes off of Him, even but for a season, we kind of get these things a little backwards and we're not relying upon the grace of God and thanking Him for the grace and the mercy which is working in us and through us, it's too often to complain in those times of trial and murmur. To try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or to figure out our way or to, to use our strength, the flesh, to meet the solutions of life. All of which are going to just, just fail. have to remember that your persevering activity is a result of God's grace and not a magnet to it. It's not a work to achieve it. Your activity is a work or a result of God's work. It is not something that works to achieve God's grace. I have to say this and be repetitive over this because we're going to walk away from here. We're going to easily forget this tomorrow. About noon. Or about 2 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> or about 11.45 this morning. Our Christian activity in the good works that God has foreordained us to walk in is an act of faith. And that faith comes only as a result of God's work of grace in us. And remember that faith is a fruit of the Spirit. Make sure we don't confuse the fire for the smoke. But when we get this turned around, which I contend that we do this more often than we realize, not in our minds, by the way, mind you, but in our hearts and our way that we live life, we struggle to keep our lives afloat. We are filled with anxiety and fears and worries and we do not experience that inner peace that only grace provides. But we strive all the harder to achieve that tranquility in the human effort which will not prevail. Am I right? You know what I'm talking about. Getting the gospel right, not only in your head, but in your heart and with your practice, is essential to the victorious Christian life. Now, God has done the work. He has declared what He has done from start to finish. He knows what's going to happen, and He has saved you to the uttermost. Now, you have to live in the light of these truths. And when you do, you'll know this victory in Christ. You'll know that He has paid it all. You'll have to strive in the flesh and try to add your worth, worth and, and effort to gain God's attention so that as a result, God will bless you. It doesn't work that way. God has blessed you, therefore, you can claim these things and your activity will be all the more energized in the right way to the glory of God. 
and to the praise of the glory of His grace. Let me tell you what. This is my personal conviction. I've not read this in a commentary. And the Bible doesn't explicitly say this. So you take it for what it's worth. I put all that qualification on you. I believe you will find it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to live this way and to be successful in this without an immersion in the Psalms that trains your spirit in the essential way of living. Without an immersion in the Psalms. Next Lord's Day, as we begin our Lord's Day in Psalm 92, I want you to sing it in the light of what we've spoken of here this morning. Every one of the hymns that we say. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. You know, salvation is not called our salvation, it's God's salvation. Even in Psalm 51 that we sang, it's, it's not only a, a plea for uh, forgiveness of sins, but in the psalm it says, and restore the joy of thy salvation in me. Renew a right spirit within me. And without the immersion in the psalms, you might get this truth of perseverance in your mind, but it's going to be hard to live it out in your heart in the orthopraxis of your life because the psalms train us. The psalms will train us. It'll shape your spirit. It'll develop your character. It'll tell you how to pray. It'll be the pattern for how you are to worship in the light of this truth. This passage concludes with a wonderful reassurance in verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. By the way, it's not just talking about the finality at the end of your life when you go to be with God in heaven. No, it is we are today more than conquerors. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That brings us right back to verse 28, that we know that all things work together for good. Yes, there's going to be trials in the Christian life, but we will endure them by the grace of God and for the glory of God. Life will get difficult at times, but God has provided the grace to live triumphantly in them. Go ask Paul after he wrote 2 Corinthians how he found the power of the gospel efficacious through all of his trials. Ask the martyrs. Ask the fathers on whose shoulders you stand. But don't live your life in the attempt to avoid problems and trials. Rather, lean on the grace of God and know that when they come, you'll be victorious. Rescript your life with this truth, this wonderful truth of the grace of God, so that when a trial comes, it has been ordered for you, it has been decreed for you. 
so that now a platform can exist that you can glorify God by His grace and enduring by the power of the gospel in Christ Jesus. When we have been placed in Christ by the power of the Spirit of God, there can be nothing that can separate you from that eternal, inseparable bond. Our union with Christ is utterly secure, not by our efforts, but by the very love of God. This is a comforting and reassuring doctrine for us and for our children. To us. For our children. To us and to our children. And for the future of the church. You know what? We don't have to strive in our flesh to ensure that this church is going to remain faithful. By the grace of God, He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you believe that? Rather, we will strive because of His grace. Because of these truths. See, it's a difference of being man-centered and works-based with the Gospel or to be God-centered and grace-based. It's the difference of us being able to rest in God's provision where grace is working out through us in good works to the glory of God. Or us working to gain God's provision through human effort and never finding the rest. Rest in His provision. Rest in His provision. Some of you know that George Grant and I pray for each other each Lord's Day morning and always will give a verse of how we're going to be praying for each other. And He writes in text, there's often at the end of his communications, rest in his provision. Rest in God's provision. See, this doctrine is at the heart of where we're restless or duty-driven or always feeling guilty or always doing things out of guilt or where we're even trying to manipulate others by guilt. Whether it be the way we train our children or we try to get our spouse to do something with, by using guilt manipulation, love never acts that way. Love brings peace. Love removes guilt. Love motivates to action. Love casts out fear. Love overcomes tribulations. It suffers long. It endures 
it is triumphant. God's love for you everlastingly keeps you in His grace. And when you get God at the center of your life and at the center of your thoughts and at the center of your work and at the center of your parenting and at the center of your being a spouse and the center of your husbandry and all that you do, you will find that praise and thanksgiving and contentment and joy and love will flow quite naturally from that spring. Quite naturally from that spring. But we constantly have to get the center right. God is at the center. It is His work. It is by His grace. And God's love for you keeps you in His grace and He grants you the victory in your living. He has promised it and you can count on it. It is of God's grace and all of God's grace that saves you from the beginning all the way to the end, including our very present. It is all of grace. It is the work of God and nothing I do can merit and turn God's favor to bless me. But everything I do with the power of the Spirit and grace working in me, is to the praise of His glory of grace, because it is Him working in me. Out of love, not duty. Out of delight, not guilt. We have to get the gospel right. Right? We have to get this gospel right. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are for Your abundant grace. We thank You for the grace that promises us that even those of us that You have called, predestined and called and justified, You also glorified and You have taken care of the whole thing. And yet you've brought forth great activity in our life because now spiritually we are alive and life always produces activity. That's even part of life is being active and energetic. And how thankful we are for the Spirit which is working in us. We feel how prone we are to fall back to the old ways and the old man. We ask this day that you would displace that works-based, man-centered way of thinking and salvation with the God-centered, grace-based manner of which is true and is right and is good and is lovely and beautiful and is powerful. Our Father, we pray You would be glorified in keeping our attention upon You. For those here that may be discouraged, we pray this would encourage them. For those here who may be presumptuous, more of a passive spirit and with this, we pray you would energize them with this truth. And we pray your grace would awaken us and quicken us and energize us. And we pray that we would go through life not struggling in the power of the flesh, but resting in your provision. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.